Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Hello everyone, or should I say Jayiv, because today we're going to be talking all about the Irish language, and specifically about how it has recently been cropping up in some unusual places. That's right. Some of you may be aware that the Irish language has recently become a full working language of the European Union, and that translates into a lot of demand for speakers of the language in various different countries all around the continent. Yeah, this new status has also rekindled conversations about the language and its future in Ireland. Irish is officially the first language of the Republic of Ireland, but its use in everyday life around the country declined very rapidly over the course of the 19th and the 20th centuries. Recent developments like this form part of a broader wave of creative and proactive movements to promote Irish once again in day-to-day life. In this episode, we'll be speaking to a human resources officer who suddenly found himself on the hunt for Gaelgory on the sunny coast of Greece. The Irish language is Gaelic, I think. I mean, so yes, there is a, a lot of people uh, that continue to, to speak this language and feel more comfortable to communicate with this language. Mm-hmm. We'll also hear from Irish language speakers in Brussels to find out more about what official language policy really means on the ground there. We'll make you proud, I suppose, of the language and being Irish, I, I think, as well. And as I said, yeah, it makes you realise that it's, you know, a language just like English or French or Dutch or it has a place and a purpose and we'll be hearing from some of you listeners about how you got into learning the language for yourselves. I had a few bits from my dad as a child. Once I discovered Motherfucker and an entire publocked Qualgor on Twitter, I fully immersed myself in the language. But first, regular listeners will know that over the past few months, our podcast has been kindly sponsored by our friends over at Irish at Heart, the world's premier Irish subscription box. If you're not aware of Irish at Heart, they have been delivering their green boxes packed full of gifts to wear, to share and to keep to customers all over the world for nearly three years now. And they've garnered hundreds and hundreds of five star reviews along the way. Well, Irish at Heart have been such a success at what they do that as of the end of January, they are going to have to restrict access to new members. That just shows the demand there is. And it's really something. So listeners, that means that what you might want to do is get in there quick especially as next month their famous St. Patrick's Day box goes on sale. If you become a member of Irish at Heart before the end of January, you'll be guaranteed to receive it. Yes, uh, Irish at Heart's mission is to make every day an Irish day, but as we all know, there's no day more Irish than St. Patrick's Day. So if you were going to sign up at any time of year, now would be the time. For sure. And as always, listeners of the Irish Passport podcast can benefit from 15% off their initial purchase by using the code Irish Passport in the discount bar. You can sign up to Irish at Heart on their website, irish-at-heart.com. That's irishatheart.com with a hyphen between each word. And you can also find a link in our episode description below. Thanks again so much to Irish at Heart for sponsoring this episode. 
And now back to the show. Okay, so long-time listeners will remember that we did an episode about the Irish language all the way back in season one, Naomi.、Mm. So if you want to find out a bit more of the background of that language and its history, listeners, you can go and check it out.、Um, Naomi, to kick off today's episode, I thought it might be interesting to look at some of the most recent statistics of Irish speaking in Ireland. Okay, great. Let's do it. Okay, right. So a lot of information about this is gathered whenever there is a national census.、Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about censuses, by the way, when I was <laughs> when I was looking up these statistics. Uh-huh.、Um, yeah, censuses in the Republic of Ireland happen every five years, but in Northern Ireland they only happen every ten years, which is、oh. interesting. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. And on top of that,、uh, the Republic's one is delayed because of COVID, but the North's wasn't. Anyway.、Okay. <laughs> Let me move on.、Uh, so let's start with the Republic. There's a few stats here from the 2016 census, which is the most recent one we have.、Mm. Um, that year, just over 1.7 million people in the Republic of Ireland declared that they could speak Irish on the census.、And、that was a very slight decrease from the last census in 2011, but only of about 0.7 percent. So it was more or less unchanged、uh, over the last decade. Okay, and that statement of could speak Irish, I would guess that that would take in a broad spectrum of proficiency. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. But even if the majority of those respondents, let's say, only had a passing knowledge、um, of Irish, that still represents a fairly significant chunk of the country. You know, that's 1.7 million out of the republic's total population of 4.7 million. You know, so well over a third of people. Interestingly, I, I suppose since Irish is a core subject in almost all the schools in the republic, it would be. I mean. Surely it would be difficult to avoid speaking it at some point in your life. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. And in like in in a way, it's actually a surprisingly low figure.、Mm. Um, but、um, that actually brings me onto two very very kind of interesting caveats、uh, to that figure of one point seven million.、Mm-hmm. So, of the one point seven million people in the Republic who say that they can speak Irish, over half a million people said. That even though they considered themselves Irish speakers, they had only ever spoken Irish in school. A further four hundred eighteen thousand people said that even though they knew how to speak Irish, they never actually spoke it. Now, I, I don't actually really know how that works, but I'm guessing that that mainly kind of translates to I learned it in school, but I engaged minimally, if、okay. at all. Right. Got it.、Mm. Right. So then, within that figure again,、um, just under six hundred thousand people in twenty sixteen said they spoke Irish on a regular basis.、Mm-hmm. Among them, only seventy three thousand people said they spoke it on a daily basis, and one hundred and eleven thousand at least once a week. So you know these things start to get more interesting, and even more so when you break break these statistics down. So, by far, the greatest number of people who said that they could speak Irish on the census were aged between the ages of eight and eighteen, so school age, basically.、Mm-hmm. And then, immediately after that age range, you just see this sudden drop off, dramatic drop off of people who say that they can speak.、Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, the number of people who said that they never speak Irish—you know—they're almost non-existent until the age of eighteen. Um, you know,、hmm. practically everyone under the 18, age of eighteen is saying that they can speak Irish, and then suddenly, after the age of eighteen, you have this explosion of people who say that they never speak Irish. Right. So, if we look at the big picture here, you know, what we're seeing is a, a very large population, really,、um, relatively, who have the tools to speak Irish, who can speak Irish, who are confident enough to declare themselves Irish speakers, 
but who are just not using the language in their everyday life. Mm. And that does, you know, clearly seem to be the challenge that governments face if they're ever really going to successfully promote the language as a living language. It's really interesting, especially when you consider that so much focus around the issue has been placed on the education system and what's it doing wrong and are there better ways of Mm. teaching the language and all of that. But if you actually look at those statistics, it seems that a lot of people are learning and speaking Irish in school. That's not necessarily the problem. It's actually what happens when they're not, when they're stopped school and they leave they're not taking the language with them as a day-to-day thing yeah ex- that's exactly it right um like this criticism this idea that you know uh, all the, the the failure of of irish promotion is is a failure of, of the school systems you know the the famous it's the way it's taught criticism that our friends over at mother folklore podcast used to talk about all the time you know that really does hang around And it hinges on this idea that Irish language in the school system is old-fashioned, the curriculum is boring, it turns people off learning the language, you know, for life, right? That's the main criticism. And you hear it all the time. And, you know, there might be some truth to that, at least for for some people. But I think what, you know, gets gets people's goat about that argument is that it kind of shuts down the conversation outside that. Like, normally the high school experience should be a fairly minor aspect of your experience with the language, right? Mm -hmm. You know... It would be very strange to hear grown adults saying that, you know, there was no point speaking Spanish because their high school Spanish teacher was really boring. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it also doesn't make sense. Like, just like you said, according to these statistics, people are learning and speaking Irish in school quite a bit, actually, and more than anywhere else. That, of all things, doesn't seem to be the problem. We could, it seems, have like the best and most effective Irish language curriculum in the world. But if people just keep stopping speaking it after they they graduate, you know, this is not going to change. That's really interesting. So I guess it's something structural to do with the country. Because as we mentioned before, like if you stop using a language regularly, you get rusty really, really fast. And if you're not Mm. using it all, you can very easily just forget how to speak it. You need, you know, to just rekindle your memory every now and again. So you would think maybe that a good priority might be that, you know, to ensure that once students leave school, they have access to spaces where Irish is still being used all the time. They have some reason to use it. Yeah, right. And this would be a way as well to kind of make use of, you know, the the basic, the basic knowledge that people have in Irish. Mm -hmm. Like something that you hear bandied about a lot when the census statistics come out about Irish language mm-hmm. um, is the idea that maybe a lot of the respondents to the census might be exaggerating how much Irish they speak, mm-hmm. that the real figure is much lower, you know, that maybe they're they're just trying to be nationalistic or mm-hmm. maybe they're just a bit embarrassed of how little Irish they speak. And, you know, who knows? We have no evidence to prove that either way. But I would actually instinctively, from my experience anyway, personally, I would instinctively say the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my experience, Irish people frequently underestimate how well they can speak Irish. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, like, you know, lots of people, let's say the majority of people after leaving school will have basic abilities, you know, like, let's say, you know, A1, A2, or whatever, um, on the European scale. That means, like, they'll be able to read a basic text, they'll be able to use really basic sentences like where's the shop or the butter is in the kitchen or whatever, you know, direct sentences, direct questions. They'll probably have a fair idea of basic grammar, even if they haven't like mastered it completely. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's kind of a fair place to be, actually, <laughs> you know, after after uh, uh, lessons in school. Like, 
what I've experienced is that a lot of people have the impression that because they're not speaking in like lyrical, fluent, complex sentences, you know, that they effectively can't speak the language. Yes. And like, that's just not true. That's mm -hmm. not true at all. As anyone knows who might have moved to another language environment, you know, that stage is actually, it's really hard work to get to that stage where mm -hmm. you can understand basic things and say basic things. Yeah. And it can bring you really far once you have that. Like, yes. you know, it's really effective. Like, I think, you know, I, I would imagine that if those same people had learned that much Portuguese, they'd be really proud of themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they'd be really impressed with how much Portuguese they'd learned. Um, and if they did move to Portuguese with that much Portuguese, um, you know, it would would serve them really well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think this is actually another consequence of the lack of spaces in which Irish is used practically, because people just don't really have an opportunity to see how far their little bit of Irish can actually go. That really resonates with me, Tim, because I think there's so much knowledge that people take for granted in the Republic. Like having been exposed mm. to the language from a young age gives you all this sort of indirect stuff, like just knowing how stuff is pronounced, you know, or being able to mm. read it because like obviously the spelling system is different, but it doesn't seem strange to Irish people, you know, you can just pronounce those things. And like even something as small as that is actually huge, you know, um, like that's a mm. massive advantage mm. in a language. It, it really struck me because I think I myself was one of these people who really underestimates how much Irish they have. Um, you know, and th but then you mm. do something as simple as like turn on the radio and you're like, oh, I can just follow this. I can just actually understand what they're talking about. And it's a kind of a revelation, mm. you know, that, you know, mm. how much you actually know. Um, it's so interesting, isn't it? I, I think one of the things that's important to notice is that, is that like when you're learning language in school, what you learn there, like the expectation isn't so much there that you master the language in like a fluent way it's like getting grounds mm. in the fundamentals but then you've got to actually use it like in like a language you know you've got to actually have spontaneous mm. conversations and use it around like that's that's the hard part and that's that's where the, the the language actually becomes a living thing yeah yeah it is interesting yeah and like by the time you've gotten through those knowing what the past future and present tense are you have done the hard work really after that it's just a question of kind of like learning words which is the fun part you know yeah. so like uh yeah school gets you through the school gets you through the the slog of that and once you have that it's actually you know the next part is 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 fluid anyway there are some other curious knockoff effects of this weird relationship between Irish and the education system. Mm -hmm. um, according to 2016 figures, Irish speakers are dramatically more educated on average than non-Irish speakers. So a whopping 49% of daily Irish speakers have a third level qualification. That must be the 73,000 people who speak Irish every day. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's really like a relatively a huge percentage. That is compared to 28.5% of the general population mm, who have a third level of qualification. Mm. Yeah, so it's really marked. Naomi, can you guess the number one occupation of daily Irish speakers? I'm going to guess teachers. Yeah, right. Okay. So once again, it's like, you know, it's just circling the school system again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Primary school teachers are the number one uh, job for people who speak Irish every day. The next group is farmers. Mm. And then the next group is secondary school teachers. Okay. So, so uh, perhaps most interestingly, more women speak Irish than men. Loads more women oh. speak Irish than men. In fact, among daily Irish speakers in their 30s, there are about 1,000 women for every 631 men. And across the board of ages, I think it's something like, uh, oh, I've, I've misplaced this statistic, but it's something like 20% more. Okay. Um, Irish speakers are women. Than wow. Men. 
That's a curious thing. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, maybe it's just simply to do with the fact that Irish women are more likely to do better in school than Irish men. I mean, that's that's a fact. Uh, we know that also from the census. Um, women do, th- uh, sorry, there's 3.2% more women in third level education than there are men. Okay. Uh, so maybe if women are just better in school, they're just like better at Irish? I don't know. Who knows? And Like, what did the statistics say about Northern Ireland? Right. So these are very different statistics now for two reasons. First of all, remember, it's uh, only every 10 years. So the last UK census, uh, which we have results for, is from 2011. Mm-hmm. So this is over 10 years old. It also asks slightly different questions, mm-hmm. which actually, they tell us different things. Yeah. Um, so the population of Northern Ireland in 2011 was just over 1.8 million. Of Northern Ireland residents aged over three years of age, 184,000 people said they had some ability in Irish, which is quite a lot. Mm-hmm. 161,000 said they could understand Irish. Just over 100,000 said they could speak Irish. Mm-hmm. And about 76,000 said they could read and write it. Uh, and that's that's all I could find about that. That's... Seems like, well, it's slightly different, but potentially a higher proportion than in the Republic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder what has changed then in the last 10 years since then, because we, we have actually explored a little bit on the podcast that there was this really popular revival of the of the language across across Ireland, but particularly in the North over the last decade. Like, for example, last year we spoke to Linda Irvine about the Tourist Irish Language Initiative, which was kind of bringing people in East Belfast to the language, and it was really hugely successful. Yeah, I think, you know, all this makes Northern Ireland a really interesting test case. And, you know, the Republic would do well, I think, to kind of look at, you know, at the differences, because it's, it would be an interesting way to see, like, what is being done differently and what are the different consequences? Yeah. Like, it is a very different situation, of course, depending on where you are. I remember in our half-pint interview with Connor and Hannah, who had started learning Irish in Belfast, they said that growing up in unionist areas, they hadn't even ever really seen the language written down, mm. like, at all, you know, uh, let alone kind of heard, heard it spoken. And that's quite a contrast to the Republic, where, of course, you know, there were things like Irish language proficiency was for years required for entry into the public service mm. or even to to uh, to get your leaving cert, you needed Irish for years as well. On the other hand, of course, you know, Ar- Irish maintained this really special resonance and symbolic importance in Northern Ireland during the 20th century, like for various reasons and on both sides of the political divide. So like you said, yeah, we, we talked to Lin- Linda Irvine from Turris and she was telling us that her Irish language classes were growing like exponentially yeah. and that a lot of the students were coming in for the very, very first time. And those were students, I suppose, who would not have been counted in that 2011 census. Right, it's like a more recent thing, right. Um, And of course, Mm. you know, bear in mind that just geographically, like the border of the north, it goes alongside one of the island's biggest scale talked in uh, County Donegal, of course. And there's a lot of movement back and forth across that border every day. Yeah, right. And this is reflected in the fact that according to the 2011 census, 8.9% of people who said that they had some ability in Irish were born in the Republic. I thought that was a really interesting um statistic to even ask a question about actually that yeah. was <laughs> that was quite a quite a funny um thing to ask and i almost get the impression that you know maybe it was expected that that uh, figure would be higher because you know that is only it's not even nine percent it still shows quite a lot of you know irish speaking you know um with no influence at all from the republic in, yeah. in northern ireland And of course, the status of Irish and how it's considered at an official level is a massively sensitive political issue, as we've talked about before. But far away from the island, actually over on the continent, 
there's been a transformation in how the Irish language, what the status of it is. And that has been that Irish has become a full EU working language as of the 1st of January 2022. Mm -hmm. I have to say that, like, usually, you know, in my job uh, reporting around Europe for the Irish Times, I, I... you know, I get to use a few different languages day to day. Irish sometimes, but it's not often that I'd be asking a question in Irish in a press conference. But that actually changed this month mm. because I got to use a couple of vocal in the press conference in the European Commission. All right. So how did that come about? Well, because of the new status of Irish as a full EU working language, one of my colleagues actually asked about it. It's a daily press conference that the European Commission holds. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to ask a question Ascalia in Irish just to test out you know what does this official status mean day to day so like what did they do what did they what did they say when you asked your question in Irish here's how that went are we not able to answer ask questions in Irish in the press room on say when the Irish commissioner is at the podium it will be possible to foresee this subject of course with the availability of the interpreters is certainly foreseen so we will have the opportunity of testing this very soon. It is definitely now, uh, as you know, a language which is foreseen in the language regime like all the others, and therefore interpretation uh, should be available. Gurumahagat Eric, Tokeshtigum, on Wilna Atnohori Arol Anish, Gurumahagat. Naomi, what I will say is that the official languages still in the press room are French and English. Yes, uh, I believe that that is uh, something which has been the case now for decades and there is no plan to change um, the rules for the daily briefing here in the in the press room. But as you know, on college uh, days when we have the college readout, uh, we include more languages, um, including usually the languages of the nationality of the commissioners coming down to the press room, as well as international sign. And uh, I would add that there was a very beautiful sentence in Gaelic. Sorry? You can reply. Go ahead. Voila. It was quite fun, actually. I suppose what I was kind of seeing was I was just seeing if there would, were actually translators there who would like uh-huh. pick it up I turned on the the English language translation stream on the audio just to see like whether they mm. would be there <laughs> and uh, well what I found out is basically you know these daily press conferences they're the official languages of them have been and are English and French. So, you know, the Irish translators won't be hanging around in case someone asks an right. Irish question on those. But when needed, like, for example, say the Irish European commissioner, whoever it is of the day, is launching something and she comes out or he comes out and, they, you know, they might be used there or there might be Irish language press there. Then they'll be there. You know, they'll be in that. They'll be in any sort of official occasion where Irish will be one of the sort of languages mm. of the day they'll be available. So I think that's really good news for the likes of, you know, TJ Cahar or other Irish language broadcasters, because it gives a real opportunity to kind of expand Irish language coverage, you know, into the into European international mm. issues. As it happened, though, on the day itself, you know, one of the guys who were conducting the press conference actually happens to be Irish. His name is Dan Ferry. So he was able to give me an, an answer in Irish just that once. Oh, that, that was nice. That was nice of him. Um, so like just so our listeners can get a kind of, of like feel for how this works. Can you is there a, a row of translators at these big events, you know, where you might have Irish being spoken? Do you have a row of translators in a, behind a window somewhere that you can see, you know, directly translated? 
lighting? You can see them, yes. So you're sitting in like an auditorium and the people who are like giving the press conference will be on a kind of stage. Mm. And then the journalists will all be in like rows of seats kind of in front of them. And then circling that room in the walls, kind of, I suppose, like overlooking there sit the translators and you can see them and there'll be like Spanish ones, there'll be French ones, there'll be Italian ones, like all the relevant languages of the day. There's there's tons of these translation booths. So you could have like dozens of languages going at once mm. and that you can see them like they watch what the person's saying and they also get an audio stream and they're speaking into a microphone and doing simultaneous translation. And then everybody who's in the room, they have like a little phone. And they can pick it up and they can dial like one for English, two for French and so on. Um, and so they can hear the simultaneous translation. That, that's how it works. Wow. Wow. That must be very, very intense work. Um, so I'm presuming <laughs> that if um, some MEPs who were intending to speak Irish or who just had, you know, Irish, who had a bit of Gaelga, they would give people a, a word in advance and say, I'll be here today, by the way, bring in the Irish translator. Well, I don't know how like procedurally the institutions you know run this mm. but yeah i mean usually so you know in the european commission there is a commissioner for each country so the slovakian commissioner say it's their turn to like launch a proposed law or something like that mm. they'll come down and everyone will is will expect that they may get questions in slovakian and may give answers in slovakian so the Slovakian translators will be there. And likewise, it can be like that now for the Irish commissioner in case any Irish language press want to ask them questions or they want to say it in Irish or whatever. You know, they, they can now do that in the European Parliament, mm. like in Strasbourg and, and in Brussels separately. There, you know, you can, the MEPs are already able to like give interventions in the parliament in Irish. Um, like this has happened many times. Right. Okay. And I believe, Naomi, all this led to you being interviewed about this on Dutch radio, your your question of Gelga. Yeah, it was kind of fun because people noticed, you know, the Irish language exchange and like the whole thing was kind of good humoured. So a few people noticed it. And in generally, you know, in general, people were really happy about this. Like mm. colleagues from Austria or Germany <laughs> were like, oh, how great for you guys. You know, your language is now like this and it's nice to see it being used in the press room and stuff like that. Like there was a real kind of positive feeling about it. Mm. Um, and one of the people who noticed is a, is a Dutch journalist called Kirti Jan Han. And he got in touch with me and he was like, oh, do you want to come on and chat on, on Dutch radio about it? So yeah, I was interviewed by BNR Dutch radio mm. and uh, I, you know, I slipped in a little bit of Irish just so, so the people can hear what it sounds like apart mm. from anything else. And what was really, really nice was that he ended the broadcast himself by speaking Irish too. Uh, he said like, Gurramagat, you know. Dankjewel, Europa verslag even Geert-Jan. Gurramagat. Ja, precies. Lovely, lovely. I mean, it might be a first. I don't know when else. Huh. I don't know when else uh, Irish has been speaking, spoken on the Dutch airwaves. So it could be a first. Well, well, let's let's mark it down anyway, just in case <laughs> for, sure, <laughs> for posterity. Um, I totally recognise yeah. this kind of like uh, fondness or charm that people have uh, in Europe. Like people in France all the time are just when they hear that I can speak Irish. They love to hear it so much, which I, I can get, I suppose. Mm. But like for them, it's like I'm speaking Aztec or something. It's like, you know, just <laughs> these, these sounds that they have literally never heard before in combination like that. People have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. are really impressed by how it sounds because it sounds so different. You know, mm -hmm. it's like something that people really haven't heard before. Yeah, right.
So when we made our last Irish language episode, all of this was already kind of in the works already. Um, but official language status has just come into force now. Mm-hmm. So what was the motivation for it happening now? Like, why didn't this happen back in 1973? Yeah, there's the backstory to this. So in practice, just to explain Irish being an EU working language, it means that it just has the same status as like Italian or Spanish or German or whatever, which basically means that laws, documents and so on, they will be available in Irish. People can ask for information or like correspond with the institutions in Irish. There'll be Irish translators, just like there's Estonian translators and so on at public events, like I described. This was something that the Irish government asked for, actually following a public campaign in 2004. It was a campaign for Irish to be an official EU language. Mm. And so the Irish government asked for it, no problem, you know, agree. EU says, yeah, sure, it's your official state language, no bother. So it technically became a full EU language in 2007, but there was a delay in implementing it, which is why it's actually coming into force now. This is called a derogation in the sort of Brussels speak. Okay, a delay in implementing it. That was quite a long delay. What what mm-hmm. was the reason behind that? The reason is that the Irish government actually, well, they asked for this because they struggled to recruit for the roles. Like, you need specialised lawyers with the linguistic skills to translate, like, EU law. You need interpreters, like, simultaneous tr- interpreters. And these people need to be willing to live on the continent, like, to live in Brussels mm. or Luxembourg or Strasbourg and so on. And there was just a shortage of those people. Like, if you think about those Irish-speaking people that we were just talking about, you know, teachers, farmers and so on. What these roles need are like people with specific training Mm. and there just weren't enough of them. So I went to speak to a bunch of these sort of highly specialised Irish speakers. And interestingly, a lot of them, you know, they're not people necessarily who inherited the language as a mother tongue. Like they may not come from Irish speaking households, Mm. but they're people who acquired it in education, really loved it and ended up doing it at third level. Mm. And now they have careers in it. So I spoke to a few of them to find out what it's like for the Brussels Gaelgory. There'd be times that I'd translate documents for the web pages. There'd be other times I'd be translating more formal documents. So I suppose it's nice to get a bit of both because it's just it's nice to have that that variety. I suppose it keeps it it keeps it interesting. That's Sean Gunning, who studied law and Irish at University College Cork and took up a position as a translator in the Council of the European Union in October. I always liked Irish in school. My parents are primary school teachers, but mm-hmm. we don't speak Irish at home. So I didn't have that advantage, I suppose, that what some people would have. And then I went, I was in a normal school, I suppose, to a bell school, and a normal secondary school, I suppose, to a bell But I suppose I think I was lucky in, in school. I always had good teachers. So that was a huge advantage to me. The official status of Irish has meant that the number of roles in EU institutions for Irish speakers has tripled in the last five years and it's now set to top 200. This has caused an interesting phenomenon. The Irish language units within the EU institutions are entirely Irish-speaking environments. And outside of work too, those working in the Irish language roles are using the language socially. And that means, you know, you have pockets of people who are using Irish day-to-day in Brussels And some of the people I spoke to told me they're using the language more in Brussels than they would at home in Ireland. Hmm. When I was home at Christmas, I was saying that when I'm out here, I'm speaking. I mean, when I'm in the office, I'm speaking Irish all day. And then even at the weekends, the thing is, a lot of my friends here, they also speak Irish. Some of them are translators, some of them aren't, but uh, a lot of them are Irish speakers. So at the weekend, if I'm meeting friends um, in a restaurant or a cafe or in a bar or whatever, it's often Irish we speak. So, I mean, it's mad to think that when I'm at home in Cork, I wouldn't be speaking nearly as much Irish as I am when I'm here in Brussels. 
like I thought when I came over, I thought after a while I know every Irish speaker here, or at least know of them. But mm. I remember hearing not so long ago, I can't even, maybe it was before Christmas, I can't recall exactly where I was, but somewhere in Brussels anyway, and hearing people speak Irish, and I was like, geez, I don't know them at all, you know. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of Irish speakers, and definitely a, a mini Gwelt of the sorts, of sorts in Brussels. Hearing Irish in the wild is something that Aileen Glynn described as well. Yeah, like you'd often hear people in the in the queue um, for Ryanair whenever speaking Irish, and they like they'd be people you wouldn't even know. So it's you know it's not just happening in a in a small, tiny little bubble, you know. Aileen went to the Irish language girls boarding school Colosh de Ida in Dingle, and then studied Irish and Spanish at the University of Limerick. She now works as a translator at the European Commission. In the Commission alone, there's about 50 translators. It really reflects, I think, the variety of people who speak Irish in Ireland because there's all the four provinces are very well represented and age, what, like there's people who are, who are just out of college, you know, people in their early, mid-twenties maybe, um, right up to... People at retirement age will say who have years of experience and um, men, women, and yeah, from all over, you know, not just Gwaeltop's area. So it's a very, very diverse kind of dynamic place to work. The Irish language translators work alongside units who are translating documents into Finnish or Dutch or Spanish or any of the other 24 official languages of the EU. Aileen describes it as something of a linguist's paradise. They're all people who are really into languages and they bump off each other and help each other learn new languages and keep up their skills in casual conversation circles, for example, during lunch. The lingua franca is exclusively Irish within the Irish department, but um, at coffee breaks, you know, there'd be conversation circles for other languages, you know, like mm-hmm. informal language learning. So there could be people speaking Spanish, French you know, Dutch, Estonian, Finnish. And that's what's nice about it, that it's, you know, on the same kind of footing as all the other European languages. Everyone kind of accepts that. And it's a really good example of how people can, like English and French obviously are more dominant in certain spheres, but it's um, definitely doable for people to speak their own languages and for everyone to kind of get along. And I suppose everyone wants to learn other languages too, especially when you work in a place that's full of translators. Jim Maher got a job in the European Parliament back in 2014 and founded its Irish language Twitter account. He feels in some ways European institutions are willing to go further than Irish ones in accommodating the language. To be honest, I might be correct, but I'm not aware of any other major public body in Ireland or anywhere other Mm. than the European Parliament that has a dedicated social media presence in Irish. Uh, So it was a very big deal back in the beginning of 2014 when the Parliament opened its uh, Twitter account, Europarl GA. I don't want to point fingers, but, you know, the Oireachtas on Twitter, they tweet, they have a Twitter account mainly in English, but they also tweet sometimes in Irish. The European Parliament has a dedicated uh, social media presence in Irish. Jim credits his own grow for the language to his teachers at Rahilty National School outside Hurlis. Specifically, he mentioned Mr. Quinlan, so hi to Mr. Quinlan if you're listening. <laughs> he thinks it's really important for people to know where the language can take them in the world. I've actually started working in DG Expo in the Parliament, which is external policy, where I don't use Irish at all, actually. But I suppose it is kind of an example of uh, how Irish open stores 
in Brussels and in the EU institutions. And while you may start working with Irish, and I very much did, certainly in my internship uh, back in 2012, you may end up doing something entirely different. And that's that's why, while I would say that Irish is as a, the, the official status for Irish, it's important in, in many ways, uh, certainly uh, given the fact that it's our official language in Ireland and, you know, having recognition in, in Europe is, is important and I think it will certainly help in some way to help strengthen the language. But yeah, it also shows that it also boils down to, to job opportunities for, for people from Ireland, for Irish speakers. And uh, yeah, while well, you may end up working with Irish at the beginning and hopefully throughout your career, you might, whether it's in translation or interpretation or communication, as I had been doing, there are plenty of other opportunities in the institutions as well. Jim's own experience working with the Irish language has brought him from the United States, where he taught Irish at a university, to an international life at the heart of Europe. It's also taught him that Irish isn't in as dire a state as some might think it is. There are tens of thousands of languages on, you know, on, on Earth, and most of them are actually in a weaker state uh, than Irish. I mean, there are countries like uh, you know, Papua New Guinea and parts of South America and uh, you know, Indonesia and so on, where they have so many languages that some of them are literally only spoken by a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people. Irish is a major language. I mean, as I said, I have taught it in, in America, and most of the people that I taught in America that were in my classes, and it's not a lie at all, most of them, they did not actually have Irish background. It was, I would say it was almost half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, people, people are interested. It's a beautiful language. It has the oldest vernacular literature in Western Europe. I think it's basically on the, almost on the same level as, as a language like Greek. And there's no escaping it because, I mean, I have literally been on a bus in San Francisco talking Irish and somebody shouted down the bus in the thick, stunning goal, Irish, imaginable, and uh, basically jumped into the conversation. <laughs> and I remember once when a queue in the Fendi from the, the television tower in, in East Berlin, Berlin, we were queuing, and my friends and I decided, decided to start gossiping about some of the people who were in front of us in the queue. And somebody right behind us in the queue jumped into the conversation, and we were completely mortified. So whether it's in Berlin or in San Francisco, certainly in Brussels, be careful what you say in Irish because you'll be understood. Uh, this is also interesting and great to hear, Naomi. I think this is exactly how we need to start looking at Irish. You know, the kind of like fatalism that we're used to hearing about, you know, a dying language or a language in decline or whatever, you know, that is in a not a negligible way that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because mm-hmm. if we continue to tell each other that Irish is on the way out, then why would anyone want to learn it, right? You know, it takes mm-hmm. away uh, quite a lot of uh, motivation. And it's also, it's not, it's not really true, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, the fact of the matter is that, like, it is a minority language, but it has a quite sizable number of native speakers still. You know, it's very far from doomed. Yeah. And the fact that so many people in Ireland and, and now beyond have at least an elementary knowledge of the language is actually like a really huge opportunity. You know, this could easily be a springboard into wider daily usage uh, in everyday life. And instead, we've contended to see it as an indicator of some kind of failure. But like, really, that is an asset. You know, there's 1.7 million people out there with, you know, a fair grounding in, in the Irish language. That's that's pretty huge opportunity. You know, when I was reporting on this, it kind of occurred to me that maybe people on the continent are just more used to multilingualism than we are. And there's less of a presumption mm. that one language needs to dominate and then having extra ones is kind of luxurious or somehow wasteful. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think this is so true. Like, and it's, it's very typical of the English speaking world, right? Like, 
this monolingualism is, you know, actually very blinkering, I think. Mm. Like I was saying earlier about people not realizing how much Irish they really had. And it's part of this, I think, because this monolingualism, you know, gives people a false impression that learning another language is an impossible task, you know, that's going to like... Because you're never going to be like uh, someone who had spoke it as their first language. But that, that's yeah. not what the aim is, right? Exactly. That's not what the aim is. Yeah. like it's, And that's largely just from lack of experience with kind of, mm. you know, muddling through languages that aren't your own with other people in situations where you, you have, don't have much of a choice, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is like actually the experience of most people (laughs) you know like whenever I have students who tell me that they're you know quote-unquote not good at languages I always remind them that like actually everyone's good at languages it's you know it's it's part of what human beings do like the vast majority (laughs) of people who have ever lived on this planet speak more than one language you know it's it's unusual not to (laughs) like we're designed for this like sure you know some people are definitely quicker at it than others that's for sure but we can all do it and you know it's much easier than we tend to make it out to be yeah yeah it's it's so much is about just like confidence and yeah not not being worried or having too high expectations for yourself Mm. um i think there could be something for us to learn here you know the efforts of the irish state to make the country bilingual since the foundation of the country really like even despite that the the language has continued to decline but there could be something useful for us to learn from other you know european countries that are managing to balance out you know finnish and latvian and portuguese and so on right yeah sure now i mean like There are a lot of cynical ways of looking at this, you know, so, you know, a lot of uh, monolingualists will say, listen, you know, like, you know, some languages are just going to disappear and there's nothing we can do about that. And then a lot of people who might disagree with that would still say that, okay, fine, great, you know, promote minority languages, but what is the point of investing in things like all this translation work in the EU? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the point mm-hmm. of translating these dry laws and documents and stuff? You know, like, this is a white elephant. This is a waste mm-hmm. of money, you know, uh, for, for, for all the work and, and resources that go into it. Back when the decision was made to make Irish an official EU language, the European Commission estimated, I have the figures here somewhere, yes, that it would cost about 3.5 million euros a year, which is a lot of money. Uh-huh. The total cost of all the EU languages and rough, the roughly 2,000 translators that come with them is about 349 million a year. And that's about 0.2% of the total budget. Yeah, I think, you know, the Irish language is a lot cheaper than most of the EU official languages because there's just, you know, you need fewer translators and stuff for it. It's just a sure. fewer number of people. I think if you just accept Irish as the official language of the state, you know, it's it then it's not really an optional cost, you know. It's not a, it's not <laughs> yeah. if it is actually on the far of English, then it isn't a choice. You have to have stuff available in both languages. That's what it means to be treated on a par with other languages, you know. Mm. I've also seen some criticism of whether this EU official status is a good thing, like tactically in terms of the language. Like people are worried that maybe taking Irish speakers out of the country might actually harm prospects of increasing it as a spoken language in Ireland. Um, what I have to say is, you know, from my experience and from speaking to them, it doesn't seem like what we're doing here is sort of like ripping out the heart of the Gale talked and exporting it or something like that. It, it seems like mm. these are people who may well have ended up in other careers in which they didn't use Irish, you know, um, they mm. may well have had lives in which they didn't use Irish very much. But, you know, they have this opportunity. These roles exist. And the reality of that is 
one, it's creating career paths and rewards for people who want to study and work in Irish. Um, mm. Two, it's facilitating Irish-speaking environments, like office environments and friend groups and just day-to-day stuff. So I have to say, like, I see it as a positive thing. And this is also really important for languages to have, you know, day-to-day relevance in the current day so that it continues to evolve, you know, so that we have terms for all the modern things and day-to-day things that are happening. It's, I think it's really broadening the future of the language and it's kind of a new frontier for it, if you ask me. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with all of that. And yeah, like, like you, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of the people that you talked to about this had learned Irish as, you know, a second language, right? You know, uh-huh. like through education systems. And, you know, now that there's more jobs to be gotten out of things like that, surely, you know, those kind of career paths, like you said, are going to be a lot more viable, a lot more popular, perhaps. And with, with every one of those people who, who's even just learning Irish in Ireland, you know, that requires an Irish teacher for them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it requires them to speak Irish to other people, you know, in the classroom. It creates mm-hmm. just like those career paths in themselves, you know, uh, do play their part. Um, in in, in re- a kind of ecosystem, right? Sure, yeah. exactly. Yeah, a whole new yeah. sector of communication and, and language promotion. Yeah. So tell us, when you were reporting for this story, you said that you found that there were actually other vacancies as well for jobs which specified Irish speakers outside the EU institutions. So like, what were they? Yeah, private sector, believe it or not. Uh, yeah. This is really interesting. Um, I looked up job ads just generally around Europe and I found a vacancy for a native level Irish speaker in The Hague in the Netherlands. Um, to work as a mortgage specialist. So that's someone who analyzes the mortgage market in Ireland and produces like reports and analysis and stuff about it. Um, So I got in touch with the recruitment agency who are called the Undutchables, um, who were running the ad. And they told me, well, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're recruiting for this role because the client wants people who, you know, can give them full oversight of the Irish market. And that means both languages, you know, Um, Mm. because half the media is an Irish and, you know, it's not, they want someone with the skills that can bring them, they can speak to the entire population uh, that has the full, you know, official languages of the country. Mm. And to be honest, like my impression was that the Undutchables, the recruitment agency, were actually a little bit confused that I was getting in touch with them and asking them why someone would want an Irish language speaker in the role. Like, and if you think about it, like it must seem kind of weird. Like you wouldn't have, you wouldn't think it was strange if you wanted someone to cover again, like say the Estonian market or something like who had both Estonian and Russian or, you know, because there's lots of Russian language speakers there. So it wouldn't, maybe it just seems strange for us, you know, Mm, Um, we're just not used to thinking about it like that. And apparently according to the, to the agency, it's, is not a one-off, like one to two vacancies requiring Irish come up in the Netherlands each year. That That is so interesting. And uh, now, <laughs> first of all, can I ha- take my hat off, please, um, to that name? Because I don't think it got enough attention there. The Undutchables. <laughs> the, the Netherlands, um, the Netherlands. What were they? A recruitment agency? They're yeah, they're specialised in recruiting people internationally for roles in the Netherlands. Right. In case that's not clear to our listeners, uh, that's Dutch with a D. Uh, pretty great. Had them bravo, guys. <laughs> I, I give you all my respect. Um, yeah. No. Uh, this is really interesting. Um, like it reminds me a little bit actually of the spam that you get in Irish sometimes. Do you ever get spam in Irish? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do get spam in Irish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And clearly, you know, it's been it's been Google translated and it's trying to sell you medicine or whatever. I don't know. And it's all in Irish because, of course, these spammers are thinking the exact same thing. It's like, well, you know, there's there's a Google Translate option for this. So, you know, like this has to be getting to someone. 
Um, and you can totally see it, you know, uh, from this point of view. Like, it does shine a light on our reactions to this in Ireland, uh, just like you said. Yeah. Because, like, actually, they're right, right? Like, the undutchables are right. Like, leaving aside Irish language speakers in general, like I said earlier, there's a sizable minority of native Irish speakers in Ireland. That's not so different from yeah. language minorities you'll find in Benelux countries or around, like, European borders or whatever. Yeah. Like... You know, of course it makes sense if you want, really want to engage with the whole country that you would engage with all of its languages. And, like, uh-huh. that is something that Ireland could definitely take note of, you know, like, l- yeah. officially, legally, you know, public documents, court documents and stuff have to be translated in Irish, um, you know, uh, if you require them. But in practical, you know, in practical terms, there's always kind of stories of Irish speakers asking for stuff to be done in Irish, like police proceedings and stuff. And just nobody, you know, first of all, you know, nobody can do it. And secondly, they just think that these people are being uh, balchy or unreasonable. Yeah. Change your language, please, to English, you know, and stop like getting on our nerves. Yeah, we just sort of like mentally write it off, you know, like, oh, okay, there is. You know, sure, there's Irish speakers, but like everyone can just use English. But other, yeah, other countries don't see it that way. They're used to catering people in the language in which they feel most comfortable. Mm. And yeah, we just sort of write write that off for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not the only one, Tim. Um, the Netherlands is not the only place where people are sought, Irish speakers are sought. You can also opt for somewhere with a bit more sunshine Ooh. because a, a number of vacancies have popped up in none other than Athens, Greece. <laughs> oh, oh right! Oh, Athens, Greece, eh? Maybe it's maybe it's time for me to start brushing up on my Gaelga there. Actually, <laughs> what's what's on offer in Athens, Greece? I can't be the only person who's been like fantasizing over the last two years about living with somewhere <laughs> with a beach and some sunshine. Well, essentially, in Greece, there's a big company called Teleperformance, and the role of Teleperformance is to provide basically all the customer support to like major tech companies. It's like the kinds of internet services that we're all very familiar with. If you need a help, technical help, you can call a customer service line mm. and you're put through to operators working in Athens who speak your language. So they've got Finnish speaking operators, Icelandic, Catalan, Flemish, Norwegian, like everything you can think of. Uh, they're serving all of those markets, about 50 different European languages. And among them is Irish. So Teleperformance is recruiting for Irish language digital business consultants and supervisors. And as part of this package, they'll pay for your flight, they'll put you up in a hotel, they'll help you to find an apartment. There's all these various perks and discounts and I don't know what. Um, And at the moment, it's all work from home. So you could be sitting on a Greek island somewhere, technically, taking these calls, which I have to say sounds pretty nice. Um, I spoke to Chief Human Resources Officer Triantafilos Alexopoulos to find out more. Teleperformance Greece is a multilingual and multicultural hub providing customer experience management to their clients and, uh, and customers. So as an omnichannel contact center here in Greece, we support markets, I mean, European uh, markets. So we support one of the languages that we support is also the Irish language. The other European, West European languages, we support also the Irish language. So uh, following our, 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 uh, our support of our clients, the Irish language requested also from our clients to support their customers. And can I ask, how many different languages do you have in your hub in Athens? I saw ads for Norwegian support, and all kinds. We support more than 45 different European languages. One of the other languages are Flemish, which mm-hmm. is also, it's, uh, you know, it's not pure French or pure Netherlands, so it's Flemish. Uh, it's um, 
more of the dialects in Spain. They have also some different dialects, you know, uh, in, in Spain, in the south of, or the north of, of Spain. There is a dialect in, in Germany. There is some different dialects inside Germany. The north side, they have some different dialects than the north side. Uh, so this is the most common dialects, uh, different, let's say, dialects and uh, exotic, as we call them, dialects in Europe. So uh, how much could a potential applicant, you know, asking for a friend <laughs> here, <laughs> how much could you expect to make on a job like that, money-wise? Yeah, they haven't published the salary, um, but I know that it's fairly low by Irish standards. But Triantaphilus pointed out that it's twice the norm in Greece, so you'd be comparatively rich there. Could you describe a little bit about in Athens, in the, in the workplace, what is it like? You know, what kind of lifestyle do people have? What is the, the sort of physical setting and, and what is life like? Yes, here in Greece, we call it the Mediterranean experience. This is that we try and we offer to the, the people that we relocate outside from Greece. We provide them the possibility to, 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 to live in a very good life of, uh, lifestyle here in Greece because actually financially they receive almost double salary than the local market offered. We help them and we support them with the relocation package, so that means that we offer them short-term accommodation to the hotel or to the performance apartments, and then we support them to find their own apartment through our real estate network services that for free that we offer to them, as the flight tickets and all these that are for free, including to the relocation package that someone comes here. And then, of course, there is a lot of benefits that we provide to relocated people. I mean, even has to do with the culture here. They have discounts and they can visit the museums, they can visit and make some sports in the sea. Uh, personally, it sounded like, I thought it sounded like a pretty cool uh, opportunity for maybe someone who's gone to a Gale school, fancies a few years working abroad. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, like, I suppose we can fantasize all we want. Um, but <laughs> I actually have a few potential candidates on hand right here for that job, Naomi. Oh, yes. Uh, because uh, back a few years ago, we asked our listeners to send us in some of their stories about learning Irish. They probably thought that those stories were lost forever, but we have them. We still have them, listeners. And we, uh, the responses were lovely. So we thought we would take the opportunity now to listen to a few of them. Brilliant. I remember this moment when we asked for this because it was such an exciting time. You know, Mother Fuckler were in their pomp. Um, there were mm. pop-up Gale Talks, you know, remember those things happening in bars where people would bring a, a Gale Talk sign and, and you'd have Irish language gatherings there socially. And mm. it felt that there was this real, like, energy you know to, in 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 irish language uh, learning circles internationally you know that there was this i don't know a kind of a wind of energy and change so anyway let's hear some of the voices of some of the people who who took to learning irish uh, who who happen to be listeners to this podcast first of all we have casey who became interested in learning more about irish when he was learning about the global decline of minority languages hi my name is casey i live in new york city and my relationship with Irish, the Irish language, started when I was just out of college. I was reading an article about how languages die and when a language isn't sustained and, and the, you know, the last of the speakers die. And then this whole sort of like body of knowledge and manner of communication gets lost forever in sort of an irreparable way. And it made me incredibly sad. 
in, in, in a, a pretty profound kind of way. And so I, I was like, I, I need to help. I need to do something. And so I did some research on languages that, uh, that, that aren't dead, that aren't dying, but are, you know, have small populations and are sort of like seen to be on the decline. And I narrowed my choices down to learning either Irish or Cherokee. And the library that I was working at in the time, uh, had, you know, tapes, uh, to, to learn Irish. So that is the language that I started learning. Most of my study has been on my own using tapes and books, uh, and the, the internet has a ever growing plethora of resources available. So it's been, it's been sort of a slow study as learning language by oneself can be. But this past year I started, I joined an online class that has been incredibly useful in terms of my progress. And yeah, the perhaps the ironic thing is I'm not Irish at all to the best of my knowledge. My heritage is predominantly English and German. So sometimes I feel like I'm invading somehow, but yeah, there's, um, it's been a, it's been a, a sort of wonderful endeavor over the course of my time. And it's been really exciting. I'm studying for the A1 exam and it's been, it's been really exciting to sort of have a goal to work towards and, uh, you know, a, a way to make progress. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know if this is exactly what you are looking for, but I absolutely adore the podcast and wanted to offer a contribution that you can use or not, as you will. Thank you for putting together the, the podcast. I, I love listening to it, and it's um, it has very much achieved its goal of helping a non-Irish person understand the island and the country and the... Uh, in a in a sort of a, a deeper way than one could get otherwise. So thank you very much and have a great one. I think it's really interesting there that Casey described a f feeling a reticence about learning the language because he didn't have any Irish heritage himself mm. and he felt like he might be somehow like invading a space that wasn't his. Um, mm. Because like this is something that we have actually encountered on the podcast a few times now. Um, I remember how Connor and Hannah, who I mentioned earlier, uh, said that they had been accused of cultural appropriation when they learned Irish in Belfast because they were from a unionist area. You know, what a misfire. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I suppose how I can, I can see how, like, with the Irish language having been, like, forced into an embattled position for so long, how that underlying sentiment might manifest. Um, mm. But I think certainly from my ex my own experience, Irish people are overwhelmingly thrilled and delighted when new people learn the language. <laughs> like, yeah. it is just this really charming thing. Uh, certainly for me, it's a huge compliment. I take it as a huge compliment that people out there take so much time and effort from their own lives to, like, delve into this dimension of my country, you know? Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a huge thing, really, and uh, it's great. So please, please, you know, if anyone feels any such reticence, don't. Um, we love to have you. Every new Irish speaker reinforces and enriches the language itself anyway. So mahan far, Casey. I wish you well. I never forget the time when I met a girl from Austria and she walked up to me and she greeted me in Irish and asked me how I was. I was like, 
nearly fell over backwards. It was amazing. She'd done like a module, you know, in college about, I don't know what it was, something to do with, um, you know, the the, the family of languages that Irish comes from. And, you know, they just had these lessons and I was just so, it was so cool. Oh, that's lovely. Next up is Joan, who tells us that she taught herself Irish while living in Alaska. Hello, Irish Passport. My name is Joan Kovach. I love listening to your podcast. I've been living in Alaska for the last few years, but at the moment don't currently live anywhere. I'm spending most of the month in Ireland, and it's my first time visiting. Um, I've been teaching myself Irish for a little over a year. Not many Irish speakers in Alaska, so I've mostly been doing it on my own. But now that I'm traveling, I have a lot more chances to go to pop-up Grailtacht and just chat with people in pubs and things like that. I use every online resource I can get my hands on and download things and save things for learning other ways at home and offline. And yeah, my connection to the language would take its whole own podcast to explore, but mostly it's a matter of exploring my ancestry and just satisfying brain curiosity. It feels really good to speak the language and explore it and just feel different different connections coming out and emotions coming out as I as I learn new things and hear my grandparents and some of the words and phrases that I learn, which is really wonderful. Last winter I was in Philadelphia and did a weekend course with Dalti Nagelga and uh visiting my grandfather and my great aunt on the way there, they told me that the the only things they remember from their grandparents who spoke Irish. My great aunt remembered like the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in Irish, and then my grandfather remembered Tamigama and Si Shias. Um so that that was all that they had left, but they loved hearing me speak it. And my mom's learning with me now. So it's been a wonderful journey and I'm having a blast exploring Ireland and getting more chances to use my Kupla Fuckle. Thanks for your podcast. I love it so much. Bye. That's so lovely to hear, Joan. And I completely get what you and Casey are actually saying here. Like, learning languages, especially at the beginning, I feel, is really fun. Like, there's this whole phase where you're discovering new words and you're just blown away all the time by these, you know, these words and these little ways of seeing the world in a different way. So it's a really enjoyable hobby in and of itself, you know, regardless of what level you end up at. Absolutely agree, Tim. Um, so listener James, James, I believe I have had the pleasure of coming across on a Kirkle Kora that we held a conversation circle that we held over Zoom during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. he lives in England and his journey with Irish was spurred on by none other than Dark O'Shea's Mother Folklore podcast. I remember James telling us that on St. Patrick's Day, when he's driving the tube, he greets the passengers in Irish, which was such a lovely thing. It's always stuck with me. Let's hear from James. I've been learning Irish for 18 months for a teacher and exposing myself to as much written and spoken Irish as possible. I had a few bits from my dad as a child, but here my family didn't speak it past a few phrases. Once I discovered Motherfucklaw and an entire publocked Qualgor on Twitter, I fully immersed myself in the language. I've read two child's novels in Irish and have also completed the entire Duolingo tree of the Irish Duolingo course. Thank you. 
it's so nice and very familiar actually for to hear James talking about remembering little bits of Irish from his dad. You know, for so many people, Irish people around the world, the language is a direct connection to their family and heritage. And, you know, it certainly was for me too. I lived in London when I was a small child and I remember sitting with my dad and he was teaching my me my hain do tree. Right, yeah. Um, as a last word, I think we probably should say a big shout out to our friends over at Mother Folklore because we've mentioned them so many times in this episode. And that's yeah. not that's not a coincidence. The Mother Folklore podcast, which ended not that long ago, was this great resource and really did play a big role in kind of, you know, bringing Irish onto social media, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hats off to them and a big hello to all those guys and to all the people who had tuned into them. Absolutely. And I think if you if you miss it, we have um, a little interview with Dark Rache, which we'll be posting over on Patreon as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you can find that over at www.patreon.com forward slash The Irish Passport, where you can also become a patron of the podcast and help keep us running. So I think that's all we have time for in this Changa Bio episode. It was so much fun listening to all those Gaelgori around the world. And I guess we'll hear a lot more Irish on the international stage from now on, Naomi. Yeah, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks once again to our sponsors, Irish at Heart. Remember to check out our show notes to find out where you can get that special discount off their forthcoming St. Patrick's Day box. Slán agus bí kínta úsá de vánt as vór gúpla fóckal. Slán, guys. 